0: Hi everyone and welcome to episode 341 of the Tick Boot Camp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Missing Link, an interview with Dr. Michael Snyder. My name is Allie Maresco.
1: I'm Richard Johansson, and I'm really excited to share with the community that we may have a tool that will put us in a position where we can advocate for ourselves with our doctors and even more importantly advocate for ourselves with the insurance carriers who are often denying us the care that we are constitutionally and spiritually entitled to.
0: We discussed post-podcast him potentially being the missing link to the field of tick-borne and Lyme disease. And I'm curious to hear what you guys think after listening to Dr. Snyder's episode. He has spent most of his career in the research field, now studying wearables. So like, just for an example, like an Aura Ring or an Apple watch. And he believes that this deep data is maybe the key to not only detecting Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases early on to prevent suffering, but also possibly the diagnosis and treatment of Lyme and tick-borne diseases, which I think truly would be the missing link for
1: this community. Back up, Michael Snyder, welcome to the Tick Camp Podcast.
2: Thanks for having me here.
1: We are really excited, and I, I'll tell you, I'm even more excited than usual because one of my favorite people in the world is serving as my co-host today, Ali Maresco. Ali, please say hi to the folks.
0: Hi, guys, and sorry, Matt. This this is going to be a good conversation, so I'm sad you're not here.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'll have to confess, I'm not sad that Matt's not here, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> yeah. So, Dr. Sando, I did share with you offline that you've become one of the stars in the community, and I don't think you realize why you've become so popular in the community. And we've been anxious to get you on this podcast for several reasons, we'll begin to reveal to you as we, as we go forward. But uh, why don't you first share with our community the experience that you had after spending some time in the Lyme Belt, you were working in rural Massachusetts and uh, something happened to you which ultimately uh, fell well within the parameters of the work you were doing and you were able to, um, you were able to uh, diagnose yourself very quickly uh, with Lyme disease.
2: Sure. Well, if you don't mind, I'll back up a little bit to put a little context in this. Uh, um, So what I do, which is a little freakish probably to most people, is I do very, very deep data monitoring on myself, meaning I've sequenced my DNA. I follow as many molecules out of my blood as possible. This will relate to something we'll probably talk about a little later. Uh, And we we do this now for a cohort of around 100 people. We've been following them for quite some time. And as part of this monitoring, we started with wearables, smartwatches, if you will, at a very, very early time when they came out as fitness trackers, it was before Apple Watch. And we um, basically said, well, these aren't just good fitness trackers. These are actually pretty powerful health monitors. And so what we did was we put them on our cohort, myself included. I'm one of the people who's getting measured. And um, and I had been wearing it for, I think about a year and a half, and. And then the, the, the way the Lyme story emerged was I was helping my brother put up fences in rural Massachusetts, where I was told at the time, 57% of ticks are Lyme infested. And so uh, I was there one day helping him put up these things. I, I did actually see a tick, although I had never, as far as I could tell, bit me. Uh, and then two weeks later, I was flying to Norway. And and again, I, I'm measuring myself all the time. So I had my smartwatch on. I also measure myself with something called a pulse oximeter, which measures your blood oxygen. And it turns out your blood does normally drop on airline flights. But on on this flight to Norway, on the last flight from Frankfurt to Norway, my blood oxygen dropped abnormally low. And I saw my smartwatch, my heart rate jumped way, way up. And I later learned my skin temperature elevated. And that was on my, my smartwatch as well. We could see that. And so that was, and it all happened pre-symptomatically. That is to say, I saw these changes and yet I didn't have symptoms. So I knew something was up. And by the way, when I landed, that they stayed, L, uh, the blood oxygen stayed low and the heart rate stayed high. And then a little bit later, I did get symptoms off and on. So I, I did you know, go to a doctor in Norway and, and um, I warned him it might be Lyme because of the timing, that two weeks. And he drew blood, saw my immune cells were up, and said, Yep, you've got a bacterial infection. You should take penicillin. I said, No, I should take doxycycline. It got a little tense there for a few minutes, you know, because doctors don't really like patients to tell them what they should be doing. But I was supposed to go above the Arctic Circle, I didn't want to be sick. And he did give in and gave me the doxycycline. Uh, it cleared it up right away. You take it two weeks. I'm sure this crowd knows it. it and when I got back, I actually got tested. And sure enough, I was Lyme positive, uh, as tested by my the antibodies I had. I even had some antigens left, um, meaning some proteins from the from the tick uh, were still present. And it's really well controlled because I just so happens I'd given blood three days before I left, and I was not I, my I did not have the antibodies at that point. Meaning I seroconverted later as the saying goes. And so the point out of all this is that I was really able to first see when I first got Lyme of all things from a simple smartwatch and this pulse ox. And so that was, and it was pre symptomatic, which is pretty cool. And by the way, I never had a bullseye. So it was very informative. And then we've carried it further. This may be out of context, but we went on the show retrospectively initially that we could tell when, when you get infected with anything, including viruses and even asymptomatic times, we could see when you're getting ill from a simple smartwatch, because your resting heart rate jumps up. And we think that's a great measure, if you will, of, of you know, when you're first getting ill, because your heart rate's way, way better than temperature. And as you may know, a lot of people don't get fever with Lyme. We've now used it to go on. Again, this may be irrelevant to this group, but. For COVID, we can tell when you're getting COVID, a median of, of four days retrospectively, three days. We have a real-time alerting system that actually gives you red alerts if you, you're shifted from your baseline. Now it doesn't, it could be COVID, it could be Lyme, it could be anything actually. It's a stress response alerting system that actually picks these things up. And so we we have that running for mostly built around COVID, but we have some Lyme studies too. I'm happy to
1: talk about. Well, so let's let's pause there for a second and let me download to you why we are so excited about you. Uh, The reason we're so excited about you is because diagnostic testing in this community absolutely sucks. (laughs) And because it sucks, and because there are so many false positives and false negatives, uh, one of the the biggest challenges that we see in this community, and we've interviewed uh, almost 350 people who have been managing chronic Lyme disease for many, many years, that they've gone on lengthy, lengthy diagnostic journeys, and because they've had to go on lengthy diagnostic journeys, they they've become very, very ill. And early intervention in most cases would have prevented them from having their lives ruined or certainly substantially altered um, had they had the ability to seek treatment at an at an early stage. So this is a very exciting, you know, development. Your your development. Uh, is very exciting, in part because it gives folks some hope that early intervention is possible if they are in a position where they're being monitored, but even more importantly, diagnostic realities are greater now, because we have a tool or you have you developed a tool based on based on your journey. So talk to us a little bit more about some of the work you're doing in a diagnostic arena, specifically to uh, Lyme disease, but any other any other illness that you work.
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll break it into two categories. One is the early detection of of an acute infection, meaning when it first appears and And so we're very, very focused on that um, for both Lyme and and actually other infectious diseases. I mentioned COVID, but we think we can pick up potentially any infection from uh, um, the smartwatch monitoring, if you will. And we did a lot of this just with resting heart rate. Now there are other variables you can pull in, uh, something called heart rate variability galvanic stressors, these are all measures. You can measure from a smartwatch. You can even measure now blood oxygen, not accurately from a smartwatch, but you can measure the changes pretty accurately. And that's the key to all this. Know what your healthy baseline is so you see these shifts. And that's very, very easy to do when you're doing continuous monitoring. And that's the power of these devices, by the way. They're measuring you 24 seven, 365 days a year, as long as you're keeping them charged. And so you can get people's baseline very, very accurately, and then detect these shifts. And as I say, resting heart rate turns out to be one of the best things. Temperature is what a lot of people use. And if you think about it, that's a 300-year-old concept, and it doesn't work in a lot of cases. And, uh, like, I didn't get much of a fever with Lyme. I don't know about other people. And with COVID, at least half the people don't get uh, a fever. So so temperature, it it can add value, but it's really not the best detection method. So anyway, we think the these devices can be very very powerful for detecting in, in you know infections in general. I'm pretty confident we could tell the difference between a bacterial infection and and something like Lyme from uh, a viral infection because if you can pull in respiration and things like that, also the magnitude of the response is different. So so I I think we can distinguish those with the smartwatch. We need more data, and that's why we're running more studies. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do, mind you, um, because you know w- workplace stress is another thing that sets off these alarms that I was talking about. And, and I know we could tell the difference between workplace and stress and infections if we could get all the data, the appropriate data, and temperatures and other things you can measure. If anyone. So uh, uh, the bottom line is, uh, by collecting these various types of data, from a smartwatch, we, we think we could do very, very early detection. So that's one aspect of all this. And then the question is how good will we be at it? My prediction is we will be pretty good as long as we can get stable baselines on people. There are some people we have a little bit of trouble for. I don't know if it's because of allergies or asthma or medications they're on, but um, there, there's a few people we don't get a good stable baseline on, but for the most people we do. And so then seeing these shifts from their healthy baseline is pretty easy. So then the other aspect that we're very interested in is the chronic conditions like chronic Lyme. And so we're taking we're on both chronic Lyme and another, it's related, but it may, or may, and it may overlap a little bit, but it's called chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, and it's, a lot of people with chronic fatigue syndrome think they've gotten it from Lyme and they may not have a, a positive antibody. So it's unclear in a lot of these cases, and there's a lot of similarities. Either way, we want to try to solve both of them. So we're doing smartwatch monitoring of these folks to try and follow carefully their physiology and how does it correlate with the kinds of symptoms and your good days and bad days. And, and for, for COVID, we can even tell when people are getting long COVID, which by the way has some similarities to chronic Lyme. We can see that because they have a he- elevated resting heart rate extending for up to a year even longer, after they've had COVID. So we can pick these up. And, and so we're trying to use the different parameters from, again, the, the physiological parameters measured from a smartwatch to be able to see if we can subphenotype the conditions, predict who's gonna get chronic conditions. So you might, again, intervene earlier, maybe manage them better depending on what we find, who responds, what treatment. So right now we're just trying to collect a lot of data in these chronic cases to see, again, what, is so, what symptoms associate with what physiology? Can we subtype this? Can we will that help and when we try to treat this? Because I, I think these conditions ultimately come very heterogeneous. And then more recently, I'll, I can tell you about some new technologies we've been implementing as well to try and tackle this. So let's
1: pause there for a second, because Ali and I are going to want to talk with you more about chronic Lyme. And we're going to want to talk to you about the systems, uh, the, the failure of the medical system. Before we get there though, let's let's uh, build out Dr. Michael Schneider and how he got to being the guy who uses like, I don't know, seven or eight different devices on himself uh, all day, every day. Well, you if gonna- you
2: want, I can give you that right now. I have four smart watches for the listeners. Wow. And, uh, continuous <laughs> glucose monitor. I'm wearing hearing aids that do more than just hearing. I do need them for hearing. but they, also, <laughs> they measure things as well. And then I have, yeah, I'll typically use about eight devices every day. I have an exposometer. I can measure what airborne
1: exposures. Uh, and, and we and we we are very interested in that too. So let so, oh, so before, okay. you, before you became the geek that that wears eight different devices, I'd like to get a sense of you know where you're from, what your background is, your education, mm-hmm. and how you ultimately became uh, you know interested in doing the research that you're doing um, at the university where you work. All right. Well, I guess
2: I don't know how far back you want to go. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, dairy farm country, actually. And then I uh, got, was interested in science, even even in rural America and, and went up going to the University of Rochester because I got a free application there, which again, it was a little unusual to break out of rural America if you've ever grown up there. And then I was a chemistry and biology major there. I I, I loved the sciences and went to Caltech uh, for grad work and then later postdoc for, for yeah, further training and I was at Yale for a long time. And, and at Yale, we, you may not realize this, but people used to study things in a very limited fashion, they would study one gene at a time. And our claim to fame, so to speak, is that we figure out why we should study all the genes at once. So instead of just trying to see things like through a very narrow lens, let's try and follow everything. And the analogy I like to do is like a thousand piece just jigsaw puzzle. Instead of just studying one piece to death, let's study, as many pieces as possible to see what the picture looks like. And so we started getting interested. We were inventing all kinds of technologies for doing that, for studying these pieces, if you will, these deep data technologies. And then when I moved to Stanford, I always wanted to apply it to medicine and and that's what we did. And and got very interested in this idea. It seemed like nobody, you know, just, just step back a minute. I think what we practice today is sick care and just, you know, I'm on the outside the system. So it's very easy for me to say this. Well, why are we doing sick care? Why aren't we doing health care, which is the name of the thing. And why do we start profiling people while they're healthy? What does it mean to be healthy? What does that look like? How does it compare across different people? How does it change over time? What happens when you get ill? And And, you know, can all these technologies that people like me and others were inventing, can we apply them to better manage people's health? That was really sort of all those things kind of coming together. And that's how we started this, started again, doing very, very deep data dives on people. Myself, I'm, I'm the guinea pig for this stuff because if something goes wrong, it's best if I screw up on me, then on another participant. And that does happen sometimes. But um, in general, um, yeah, that's what we did. So we started following then about hundred people. We've been running, so me, I've been profiling for 13 years now and, and uh, basically a little over hundred people for about 10 years. Uh, and the data get richer richer we find you know we found some with early lymphoma other people with pre cancers some serious heart issues so so these deep data are giving a much better picture by the way they're all found before people get symptoms so by doing a deep data dive on you we can see things that may not yet be apparent about things going wrong and that's how it all started let's get this just a clear picture of your health. And uh, we can even say how people age, believe it or not, because we see how they're changing over time. And we think you need about two years of data. And we'll tell you how you're aging. And then we're not all aging the same, by the way. That's all a separate discussion. So I don't know how chronic Lyme people age. That'll be very interesting to see. We should probably look at that.
1: Well, we know, we know they, they, they are aging more quickly. I mean, we, we, we can certainly- Yeah, can, it'd be
2: interesting sure. to see how though. I don't think that's ever been looked at. That would be a cool thing to, to learn from our study. So anyway, this is this is how we got into it. And, and it's all focused on this, like profiling people while they're healthy so you can catch disease early. And keep them healthy. Basically. Well, so so
1: there so there is this spectrum, right? And and I want to focus on one more piece, and I'd like Ali to give you some input as well. And that is, is uh, I like I like your distinction. I've heard you argue this in other podcasts that I listened to to prepare for for this interview we're doing with you. And and I love the distinction between the healthcare system and the sick care system. And you've argued that you know we incentivize medical providers only to treat people when they're sick, as opposed to. Um, providing uh, services to folks who want to stay healthy. And I really love that distinction. But I, I, I want to I look at the sick care system a little bit more because there's a problem with the sick care system that I think you may also be, you know, the, the missing link to helping us to resolve, which is which is in the sick care system, we've decided as a matter of public policy, beginning with Bill Clinton's administration, that we were going to open up the system to a larger number of people. And as a result of that that very well-intentioned desire to open up the system to more people, we've actually become an acute care system, not a chronic care system. You cannot get get high-level care for a chronic illness in the system because we made this policy decision that we wanted to open up the system to a larger number of people, right? So as a result of us now being in an acute care system, the average practitioner has less than 15 minutes With a patient. And by the way, that practitioner is going to interrupt the patient who is trying to upload information to the practitioner within 11 seconds of that person coming into the practitioner's office. Right. So we have 15 minutes and really 11 seconds to upload what is going on with us. For the for the practitioner to now give us a diagnosis, right? So what we see, not just in the US, but around the world, is that people with Lyme disease have to step out of the system in order to be able to get proper care. And of course, those people who don't have the resources to step out of the system are the people that are screwed the worst, right? So yeah. I, I was excited to learn about your perspective about sick care and health care and how you could help people to stay healthy and, and put them in a position where they can get they can get an early diagnosis and then, of course, have early intervention. But I, I'm even more excited, quite frankly, about the prospect of your work helping us to get high level care in a system that only offers acute care because a lot more information could be provided to the practitioner before he, she, or they interrupt me with the 11 seconds I have to upload that information. But even more importantly, we have a lot more um, we have a we have a greater opportunity to partner once I have my data and the practitioner is now in a position where they can review that data before we come in and, and interact with one another. So, Ali, before we before we ask Dr. Snyder to comment on that, give me your thoughts on uh, on my perspective that we only have an acute care system and whether or not perhaps this is the you know maybe this is the link to, you know, those of us who don't have the resources to step out of the system and getting high-level care. Maybe Dr. Snyder really is the, you know, is the link.
0: I think he is. I hope he is. Um, (laughs) You know, in my past experience, it was very, very challenging even to get, you know, a proper diagnosis because what what I experienced from just seeing so many very high-level, like highly accredited specialists... Um, was that if you didn't fit in like a neat little box for certain you know diseases, autoimmune conditions, whatever it was, um, they just didn't really know what to do with me. And like that's the same thing that I've heard echoed from a lot of different patients. um and it's not until you're so sick that you're in the hospital from like these root causes that are unknown that then they're treating you. But just for what's going on, like in that instance. um, and I you know, I'm really lucky. i I have great care. But, like Rich said, I had to step outside of the system um and I see Dr. Richard Horowitz in New York, but like couldn't, you know, find anybody to help me. And it, you know, it was very frustrating. Um, but I think this deep data is really, really interesting, and it already seems to be so impactful because, it seems like you can correlate like these different things in the body to like what's happening. And it, it's also like evidence building for patients and for their physicians. Um, so I'm excited.
1: So Dr. Simon, mm-hmm. give us your reaction to how your work may be giving us the opportunity to give our healthcare uh, mm-hmm. practitioners a dashboard Within the, again, I don't want you to focus on the, on the healthcare element of it. I want, I want you to focus on the sick care element right. of this, how your work can put us in a position where this failing system is, is more likely to be successful in the patient doctor relationship.
2: Yeah. Well, you put a lot in there and, and I would probably unpack a few acts, aspects of this. Please do. Um, sure. I mean, you're right. We definitely practice uh, sick care and. We, we need to get the financial systems aligned mm-hmm. so people will truly do health care, mm-hmm. meaning nobody pays to keep you healthy. You have to do it out of your own pocket. This issue, you said about 15 minutes is a, is a critical part of this whole thing. Doctors, and and they're well-meaning, don't, don't get any of this wrong, but 15 minutes, especially in a complicated, such chronic disease, and most chronic diseases, by the way, are extremely heterogeneous. They have Variety of symptoms. So how can you possibly figure out a person in 15 minutes? It's just yeah. not possible. And so that is a problem. And again, there's no proper incentive because of the way our financial structure is set up. They have to see a lot of patients. They have a certain number they have to see to keep their revenue coming in. And so it just, we just don't have a system to deal with either these especially complex chronic conditions. Uh, or in keeping people healthy. So we, we really need to re- revamp the whole thing. But even on top of that, I do think these new technologies that are out there, like the deep profiling stuff we do and the wearables in particular, can really transform this. The so wearables are actually dirt cheap when you get right down to it. There are a few hundred dollars. Um, I mean, maybe you buy an expensive one for more, even a cheap one though, a $99 one will probably do a lot for you, in my opinion. Uh, and so we we should have these as part of our healthcare system now medicine is conservative and there's reasons for that they want to be careful but i i argue doing nothing is not very helpful and that is what a lot of medicine does whenever you come up with something new like sequencing genomes our first reaction is oh that's a bad thing to do you're going to turn everybody into hypercontracts, and which we got people were really mad at us for sequencing healthy people's genomes because they said, look, you're going to find all these things that turns people, just what I said, and the hypochondriacs, and that's not a good thing. It's got millions of dollars. Well, it turns out that's not true. Now the system's warmed up. But we're in that spot with wearables right now where if I, I used to start presenting wearables to people, and I still do. I do it all the time, in fact. And physicians, our first reaction when we started doing this, well, they're not accurate. They're not very good. You know, nobody really knows what to do with that. Too many false positives. Well, first of all, heart rate and heart rate variability are way more accurate off a smartwatch than you'll ever get in a physician's office. It's just it's so there's this instant, you know, pushback from physicians and it's partly because they don't understand the technology. Again, it's human nature to do this. But I think we need a more embracing system because where I'm going with this is exactly where I think you were heading. This data, these data are very very powerful. You can bring in I can follow, you know, if I get your last six months resting heart rate, I know roughly what's going on in terms of a lot of things. And if there's something that went off, I can know when it went off because your heart rate will jump up. So we can actually use this data. And instead of being this, I think that's what some physicians feel threatened by, oh, you're gonna do all this home monitoring. That's gonna be a terrible thing. It's actually a good thing because it's gonna help them. They could imagine you come in with that data uploaded, like you say, already pre-uploaded. They could see what your resting heart rate just glanced at it for the last few months, or you said, look, 10 days ago, this thing happened to me. Maybe it was a tick infection, I don't know. And that's when your, your heart rate jumped up. They could actually spot that instantly. Instead, they'll ask you, so when do you think this first started and this sort of thing, which is not a bad thing to ask, that's one symptom, but you could actually see when they saw a physiological shift right from the data. And we can have algorithms. This is going to be an AI world where we can have algorithms that detect all this stuff. We already do have them around me. And so I think we, we can turn this into a really beneficial system. And I'll back this up one step even further. There are 3.8 billion people on the planet with a smartphone. Half the people on the planet have a smartphone. And you if you compare that with a smartwatch, you actually have a health monitoring system for half the planet. And including in very rural places, they have smartphones. So it may be the connection's not great, but it can still tell you when something's off. So I think if we can get these kinds of technologies into the system, get them embraced, it does require education. And it's, we have to show that these things have value to the medical establishment. I think they'll adopt them. And I think they can be adopted for early detection, like we talked earlier, and they can be adopted for chronic conditions like Lyme and other things to be able to see how people are doing, you know, are they getting better? How do you know if you take a medication if you're doing better? Well, I feel better. Well, okay, that's fine. But imagine you've got heart rates and we now set up a new maybe I'll introduce this now if you want to hear. We have a new microsampling system where you do a little prick of blood. I know what this sounds like they sound a little scary. (laughs) Uh, We we can do a pick of blood and measure thousands of molecules in that blood, which a lot of which are key, like inflammatory markers, things like that. And so imagine we can start coupling these kinds of technologies with people who are on, who have chronic Lyme or other things, and we could actually see, well, how are your inflammation markers going? Mm -hmm. Are they improving or not? We can get much more precise, measurements about what's going on to see whether you're getting a positive response, or maybe there's no effect, or maybe you're getting worse. And uh, so I think these technologies, wearables and this thing we're calling microsampling, sampling, where again, these pricks of blood, we spent six years developing this paper just came mm-hmm. out two weeks ago. So uh, I think they're going to be very, very powerful. And they're also perfect because you do them at home. You don't mm-hmm. have to go to a physician where everybody's sick. People don't really want to go to a doctor. It's inconvenient in many mm-hmm. cases. And most people are working too. So they don't, uh, or if they're not working and they have chronic conditions, they it's hard to get to the doctor. So actually doing at-home sampling can be very, very powerful. So but we I think have, these combinations will be awesome.
1: But it, isn't isn't the data going to be better when we have a baseline where we have... The, the 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 devices and by the way i have an aura ring i've been wearing for three weeks i do want to talk to you about that a little bit um but where but where the devices are measuring us in our native habitat where i'm at home and i'm comfortable as opposed to when i go into the doctor's office and i have white coat syndrome and they say hey maybe you have high blood pressure i don't have high blood pressure you're making me anxious that's what's happening here so let's have let's have you know and and i and i heard i heard uh, you argue that some of these devices are are collecting about a million data points a day as opposed to me walking in and having a stethoscope on my chest or on my Mm -hmm. arm when they blow up a balloon on my arm once. I mean, isn't it, doesn't it make a lot more sense that you're getting a better baseline and you're getting more data in in a natural environment as opposed to getting some data in a high stress environment? And why wouldn't doctors be embracing that information and that, that tool as opposed to being troubled by, uh, I don't know, a better informed
2: patient. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I mean, in fact, that's, where we're going this heart rate, heart rate variability, they're just much, much, if I pull my heart rate, resting heart rate, first thing in the morning, I know exactly what my health state is. Uh, whereas if I measure, if I were to use the values in a doctor's office and I don't get nervous, I've given hundreds of samples in doctor's office the last 10 years. Uh, I, my heart rate's all over the map. It depended whether I biked there or drove there, even if I sit around for a few minutes, it doesn't come back to baseline. The measurements in the doctor's office, and then a lot of people, as you point out, get nervous. So those values go way off. It it just isn't as accurate as what you're gonna capture first thing in the morning uh, from this. And to be honest, capturing it throughout the day is very valuable, it turns out too, because there are times when people are very stressed and you can capture that information. So I think this continuous monitoring it, it's everything you just said. It's not only more data to get a complete picture of what your baseline looks like. It's also seeing you in, in certain perturbations. This may sound a little strange, but I actually think an airline flight is a great way to get a pulmonary test <laughs> um, because they drop the air pressure in the cabin and put you under a little bit of, you know, uh, very mild oxygen stress. And it's a, it's a pulmonary uh, measurement in a sense if you have a blood o- oximeter on it. So these are the kinds of things you could get. I, I still debate whether um, is resting heart rate the right thing or is a walking heart rate a better measure. You may know the way you tease out a heart defect is by doing a stress echo where you run on a you know to your VO2 max and get this measure, and that teases out a lot of things that you wouldn't see by just sitting around. And so I actually think we're we're not there yet, but I think being able to learn how to capture what is your walking heart rate. And how does that look compared to your normal healthy baseline? Now, I, I, my own prediction, if you've ever been ill, which we all have, you probably know it's hard to walk a little bit. The more ill you are, the harder it is to exercise. And I actually think it's going to be a better measurement than resting heart rate. will be the, uh, so but we got to standardize that.
1: So Ali, why don't you talk a little bit about your experience and how a Lyme disease journey is really one where there's a lot of trial and error. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there really isn't a lot of baseline for different types of treatment protocols. And what happens is, as people become their own doctors because they've been failed by the medical system, mm-hmm. uh, you end up putting yourself in a position where there's a lot of trial and error. So can you talk about how maybe this would have changed and could change your journey? Because first, you're going to be getting baselines and have a better understanding of who you are as a bioindividual. And then secondly, you'll be able to know more quickly whether or not a protocol that you're trying is effective for you because you now are getting feedback very quickly right after you start to use a new protocol.
0: Yeah, I think um, this is why Dr. Snyder, when you were talking about how you know patients do these treatments and they say they feel better, which is great, but is that like a true representation of how that treatment is really working for you or even like monitoring that long-term? Um, I found that really, really interesting. And also like, quite frankly, like wonderful because as somebody like living with tick-borne diseases you tend to go in and out of these um, periods of like great health. And then all of a sudden one day you wake up and you feel like you just sank to the bottom of the ocean you know, when you feel terrible. Um, So like, I've been one of those people that's done the treatments and has felt amazing for like three months, six months, even a year. And then for whatever reason, um, I, I sink and I, I don't feel well. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting concept to me that like, there's like this hard data that we can look at that will tell you, um, how that treatment actually resonated with you because it is, you know, a lot of up and down and a lot of trial and error. Um, and it, for me personally, it wasn't really until my last, like two doctors who are really researchers, um, where they just monitor me in like a completely, you know, different way in a much more intensive way. Um, and really go off of that, which I, I love. And like, I think it's interesting to nerd out on, um,
2: yeah, they probably went off the books, I guess, huh? (laughs) Yeah. They follows the standard protocol.
0: It's a lot of blood work, which is fine. A lot of, um, oxygen monitoring, heart monitoring, like things of that nature. Um, and this might be a little bit off topic, but I was curious to ask you a lot of Lyme and tick-borne disease patients also have POTS for whatever reason. Um, so is it, I don't know if the right term is like harder, but is it harder for you to get like a baseline on somebody like that where like some of their vitals are just all
2: always jumping around? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, we we do have some pot. So we do have a study running around chronic Lyme and also this chronic fatigue syndrome. And so I'd love to have people sign up where we mm-hmm. will put a smartwatch on them and follow their physiology. And we'll do this micro sampling I was mentioning mm-hmm. where you use biochemical measurements to see what's going on. And the, the goal there is to try, it, it's hard when they already have the condition. So we're trying to, you know, monitor their good days and their bad days and see if we can, see what associates with the bad days. Uh, and, and we this sound geeky, but these time-shifted models because there should be causative events associated with your bad days. Mm-hmm. And they may be happening earlier, the expectation is they would be. And if we can track that, if we can track, say, in certain conditions, people will over-exercise, crash. That's certainly mm-hmm. true for chronic fatigue syndrome. For POTS, it's a, it's a somewhat different scenario. And and so we should be able to find that, right? If we can see at a personal level, what someone's pattern is like yours, what kinds of events are associated with bad days and and you know which ones are with good days, we should be able, it's a data problem. We should be able to capture that data and then hopefully feed it back to you. Maybe not right away, it may, we may need enough data, but down the road, hopefully we'd get enough data to be able to say, hey, these are the things that look like they're, associated with bad days, maybe you should keep it, it could be food in some cases. Some people mm-hmm. have food triggered issues, as, as you mm-hmm. may know. Uh, for a lot of people, it can be exertion, how much they they push themselves. Mm-hmm. Depends on, again on the situation and, and for POTS, yeah, that's a whole special category. It's hard though once they're already ill, right? You, you're, not, you're not getting the perfect healthy baseline, but you are getting yeah. the baseline. So it's kind of the best we can do once they're already ill. In my world, they would have if they had a smartwatch before they got ill, you know what the real healthy baseline is. That would be ideal, right? And then you'd see what that shift is and ideally capture it as it's happening. So we could see what
1: triggers these sorts of events. Huh. So before before Ali, we get too deep into geeking out on on the different tools, because there are several tools um, I think you want to talk about. Let's let's stay one second, Ali, with, with the with the other. Opportunity from a policy standpoint, and that is that is uh, insurance companies, right? You you were talking, mm-hmm. Dr. Snyder, a little bit earlier before we before we veered off on uh, on financial incentives and how the the system is financially incentivized only to treat sick people. I argued it's only to treat people who are acutely sick, uh, but then we have we have this other issue, which is is uh, is that doctors' offices are driven by insurance companies, right? Mm-hmm. And um and one of the things that we've seen repeatedly, and, and I'm going to ask Allie to talk about this in a minute. Is that many people in our community uh, who are covered by insurance are making requests for certain types of care. And then the insurance company is taking the position that it doesn't effectively treat lomseys. There isn't a- enough research, or not enough? There aren't enough studies or isn't enough, uh, you know, there there isn't enough. Uh, uh, you know, acceptance in, in the community of people who are doing this research, right? But, you know, I'm a bio individual. My doctor believes that, that a particular protocol will work for me. But of course, there's no data. Now, one of the things I think we can now do with your tools is we can now make the case of the insurance company that something's working for us, right? Mm-hmm. So, For example, if we wanted to have the insurance company pay for for IVIG, and I want Allie to talk Mm -hmm. about that, and I'm now starting to benefit from that because I have hard data that I can send Mm -hmm. to my insurance carrier, it's going to be a lot harder for them to deny us from getting that kind of treatment. So Alec, can you talk a little bit about your journey with the struggles you and your family have had with getting insurance carriers to pay for care that was going to be helpful and in fact did turn out to be helpful, but it was an absolute struggle to, and in some cases even um, get the insurance company to connect it to Lyme disease in order to be able to pay for it and how this type of uh, this type of work that Dr. Schneider is doing will put us in a position where we can force insurance companies to give, give us the, the care that we deserve.
0: Yeah, um oh my gosh, I haven't talked about this in so long. It's like it's interesting to think about, but um when I was sick, this was about 4 or 5 years into getting sick. Um my old specialist, my old MD basically was like something else is going on here. You either have, you know, suppressed immune system or or there's something because really you should be getting better and I, and I should have been. Um and so we started looking at I can't remember exactly what it was, but something with my body. Um, and he was like, I think you need, um, you know, some kind of immune treatment. So we applied for IVIG with the blood work, with the evidence, whatever, and it it got denied. Basically it was a year that um, my insurance company denied us. Um, and, you know, IVIG, like I, I'm happy to go outside of the system, I'm happy to do things myself if it's going to work. Um, but IVIG, it's like one of the most expensive drugs. It's more expensive per ounce than gold. So it, it just wasn't possible. Um, so I basically just withered away and got like sicker and sicker and sicker for a year, um, until finally, um, I did an immune challenge and I, you know, miserably failed this immune challenge, like for better or worse. And we reapplied with that and they finally approved it. And thank God I've been on it ever since. And I really think it's one of like the major reasons that I've gotten better, um, but it's interesting, just whether it's federal or state to state, you know, insurance companies, a lot of the times after 30 days, they won't cover Lyme treatment. There's, you know, patients are just suffering. Um, so I think the fact that this can provide some kind of evidence to them that something is working is pretty incredible. And I'm excited to see what it does in the future. So I don't know if I answered what you wanted me to talk about, Rich. Well, yeah, so, yeah, so, so I'd, really like really like I'd be like Dr. Schneider's
2: you know, I probably had two comments for that. I hate to say it, but I think in the long run, you can need proper clinical trials to get it mm-hmm. as a routine prescription. But I think you hit an important notice, which is you—you you, you saw something that you thought was mm-hmm. working, uh, at, you know, in your personal experience. And then, if you can work with, you know, a group of people, uh, several people see the same thing, you can actually get a trial run—a trial that will convince. I think, insurance companies show mm-hmm. it work, show it has effectiveness, and then it can become prescribed routinely so you don't have to go through, uh, you know, all kinds of gymnastics to get this stuff mm-hmm. reimbursed. So, so I think that's where the citizen science part can, can see this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think on the other side of things was what, where I think you were going also in part with this, is which is with the monitoring that we do, it is quantitative. So mm-hmm. if we can say, look, this is, you are having an immune Mm -hmm. problem here and that's what's flashing up here this is a severe immune you know burst which we should be able to measure with the kinds of things we're doing with wearables and with this micro sampling we should be able to see that when it's happening imagine you have these things at home that you just mail in and, and say yep you've got an immune burst you should be able to show this to your physician who does have a lot of you know uh, discretion to order things. And so that's mm-hmm. where the medical system can work in your favor. He can prescribe things off label to mm-hmm. help you. Now, who pays can get tricky in that situation, you'll have to see. But I, I do think that can be helpful. If we can show people hard data, look, mm-hmm. your heart rate jump way up. You're, you've got a cytokine burst. These are immune mm-hmm. molecules, those who are listening. Um, be, your immune molecules are really like bursting out Uh, you should take something that's an immunosuppressant and and this Mm -hmm. could be helpful in those circumstances. So, so I think it does help us present data that could be useful for treatments. And then, as I say, in the long run, I think this is, I'd like to see this be a routine part of monitoring. Uh, You know, you may or may not know most drugs don't work, period, whether it's neurological diseases, whether it's, you know, these chronic conditions. um, And so it's very hard to know when they're working and when there's not if we don't have quantitative measures around them and that's what i like about the, these these are very convenient at home monitoring methods that that can give real hard quantitative data
1: so so let's bring these roads together now right we talked a little bit about doctors and their reaction to uh, to this monitoring and some of the pushback you've gotten Dr. Schneider from medical doctors you've worked with. We've now talked about insurance companies and some of the challenges that we have with getting insurance companies to provide us with, the, uh, f- with payment for the care that we're benefiting from. But now let's bring this together and see how now doctors who are really good people who really wanna help people um, are going to feel now protected by the wearables rather than threatened by them. And what we mean by that is one of the things that Allie can share with you is that her doctor, for example, a current doctor, Horowitz, Uh, has had to defend his medical license on a number of different occasions. Ali's familiar with uh, long Island's, Dr. Joseph B. Arscano, who's one of the real stars in our community. And one of the pioneers in, in, in treating people with Lyme disease dating back to the early 1970s and early 1980s. And, and ultimately got suspended from practicing medicine because he was using treatment protocols, which by the way, have been born out to be, uh, to be, um, you know, medically accepted practices, but there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of data back then. And, 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 So what happens is a lot of doctors are afraid to treat Lyme patients. Why? Because in their heart they want to be helpful, but in their heads they are afraid that they're going to have their licenses yanked because they're giving us the kind of treatment that may be off-label to use a great term that you would use, right? Now, why I think doctors will start to embrace you and love you as much as Lyme patients love you, Dr. Schneider, is because they can now do what it is that they've been trained to do and treat each person as an individual. And when they find somebody that's outside of the, the bell-shaped curve, somebody who is an outlier, they can treat that outlier and treat them safely, meaning their license will not be put in jeopardy because they now have data that's that that Schneider's protocols or algorithms or dashboard is now going to make available to them and they can now defend themselves when the insurance companies are trying to yank their license so give me a reaction to that dr snyder
2: well i think uh, again if it's not yet proven you'll have to run it as a research study which you can do and, and and i think this is the way to roll it out as a research study which also helps protect them a bit so the patients consented to this. So so I, I think that's a safer approach, but I, I do think in the long run, it's exactly what you say. That is to say, you know, if you are monitoring people better, you can, can follow it better. I, I do want to point out a lot of these devices are not yet approved yet, so they will, but that'll be much like a thermometer, right? It, <laughs> right? Thermometers weren't approved for a long time. And now, of course, everybody uses thermometers to tell if they're ill, even though it's, to be honest, not the best way to tell if you're ill. But, um, so I think we will get to that point. Let's get, the device will get approved. It's a brand new area and and I'd like it to mature faster than it's doing, uh, but it will get there. I think we'll, we'll be having these standard monitoring systems. One thing I think it's worth bringing up for the, for the listeners, you know, one way to think about this is uh, I like to use the car as an analogy. You, you may know that your car has lots and lots of sensors on it. And it relays that information into your dashboard. So when you drive a car, it's very simple to do that. You see your gas, you see speeding, you see engine lights, just a few things tell you the health of your car. And I think we can set up a very, very similar situation, both for healthy people and for these chronic folks to see, um, you know, follow their health with this mon- these kinds of monitoring systems. And this is where it can become very, very simplistic uh, to relay back both to the person, you know, the patient, the the consumer, as well as the physician, I think the two can work together to be able to do a better monitoring system. And I would hope that the insurance company would embrace this, getting back to your earlier comment, because actually it'll be keep people healthier. If you catch these things earlier before they head down a very, very bad trajectory, certainly for early detection, but even for chronic conditions, let's not have people totally crash out where they wind up in. You know, an ICU or in something, a very expensive treatment, if you can say, look, these kinds of events are not so good for you. They'll, they'll lead to your, your your bad days, so to speak. Let's try and avoid those, and we can easily, I'm, I'm very convinced we can have algorithms that can detect all that at a personal level. And an insurance company should actually embrace that because it it should save them money. Uh, but they will want to, uh, I hate to say it, but also at the end, they'd like to see it, it save, it does save them money. I think they care about that a lot. And so I think we're going to need downstream studies, not just, you know, trying to keep people healthy, I hate to say it, but we need to show insurance companies this kind of management will save them money in the long run. Getting somebody with a, you know, having them something turn into a serious heart issue, which does happen with chronic Lyme action out of the situations, mm-hmm. is, is very, very expensive. And so those are kind of good arguments you can try to make to insurance companies.
1: So, you know, but like I I'm making a different argument, Ali. I'd like you to weigh in on this as well. That 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 researchers are wonderful people. You're one of them. You're wonderful. So we thank you for all the great work that you're doing for us. Uh, but what researchers do is they generally give us generally accepted medical practices that that are designed for the average person. Right? We understand the bell-shaped curve. We understand there are outliers, and where clinicians in my view, are are the most valuable is when they have to treat the outliers, when we don't fit within the four corners of the research that you've done. And now we're an outlier, right? And now we need to be treated differently, which is what we see with almost everybody who has Lyme disease, certainly chronic disease, they're outliers. Now they're outliers because there hasn't been enough enough research done. And and because it hasn't been enough research done, um, you know, we don't have, we don't have protocols that work generally. So doctors are now you know, Lyme doctors are people who are now treating almost entirely outliers, and they have very little data to rely on. And, you know, Ali, I'm sure we'll, and I'm going to ask her to speak to this, we will tell you that in many of the interviews we've done, guests who have said, well, I can't tell you the name of my doctor, or please don't ask me the name of my doctor. So the doctor has done something that has been, has been you know, has been clinically uh, appropriate and has been helpful to the patient, but they don't want to tell us on the podcast who the doctor is that did what they're sharing with us because they're afraid their doctor's ultimately going to be suspended. So Ali, why don't you talk a little bit about that and what your experiences have been with, you know, doctors treating you clinically as an outlier and how they've been anxious about that and less likely to do that, even though that was required for you to, you know, get to a level of of health stability.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I think when I first got sick and um was getting help it was in a very traditional um setting you know which there's nothing wrong with that it just it didn't quite do what I needed it to do um so I went to a specialist who was wonderful and I think helped me you know as much as he could um with like his knowledge and expertise um and definitely went outside of like your standard, you know, two weeks of doxy. And, you know, I was still sick. It didn't do anything for me. Um, But what I find interesting about this conversation and how it can help in the future is like Dr. Horowitz is the perfect example of this, where at one point, um, you know, they challenged, the state challenged his medical license in New York and so on and so forth. And then, you know, he went on to become the co-chair of like the tick-borne disease working group for Congress and work with the NIH. And, you know, he does everything by the book and um, does everything as like a peer reviewed study and all of these things. Um, So it's a little bit of a different situation. Um, But I think at one point, you know, the government, like these governing medical boards kind of looked at these MDs, like they were off their rocker, you know, and in reality, now there's a certain subset of them that are really helping to like change the narrative and create new guidelines and, open this conversation and do these studies. Um, So I wonder if this kind of deep data and all of these things can, I'm trying to figure out a way in my lime brain to say this so it makes sense, but um, so it doesn't take like 30 years from a doctor being investigated to like working with the NIH or whatever it is, even if it's not at that level. where then, you know, whether it's insurance companies, you know, medical governing boards, whatever, can actually, like, take what these doctors know from their experience and research it, work with it, like, whatever that looks like. Um, I'm just curious to see if it speeds that up.
2: I hope it does. Yeah, yeah, no, I see where you're going. This is more from the treatment side of things. You're, yeah. You're, yeah. So trying to get engaged. So I, I think th- this is a really great point. And we are, believe it or not, talking to the and some others about Trying to use these approaches to actually monitor treatments and effectiveness, which is what you're getting at. And um, I actually think they're going to be powerful because they are mm-hmm. excuse me, following you 24 7. They're much, again, deeper data so you can see what's going on. And then you don't, hopefully, you don't have to wait six months to see if a treatment's working. Mm-hmm. You know, and if in, you know, even weeks, perhaps, and save a lot of time, something isn't working because this stuff getting back to the earlier discussion, it is very personalized, different mm-hmm. treatments work for different people. And so we can actually see, well, this is not working for you after a few months. If your inflammatory markers aren't changing and you've got high mm-hmm. inflammation, let's try something else. So I, I I do think these deep data dives can be powerful and, and along with the wearables uh, as part of that. So absolutely, it should work. I do think we have to get uh, people used to thinking about that <laughs> probably show it, run some trials uh, along with us, and show how we can actually accelerate treatment times and, and effectiveness by implementing these kinds of, of technologies into the treatment regime for the monitoring part.
1: So, Ali, why don't we circle back to where we were on when we, you were talking about pots and some of the some of the mm-hmm. advantages that these wearables could offer to folks. Um, when uh, when they're dealing with various elements of uh, of the Lyme symptomology.
0: Yeah, I'm just curious. Um, obviously, tick-borne diseases are tick-borne diseases are very complex. You know, whether they're they're acute or chronic. Um, and a lot of us, where we do have like either neuro Lyme or um, you know chronic Lyme, we tend to have these other like comorbidities like POTS or you know like i turns out after you know i finally got like a correct another correct diagnosis for my immune issues i have specific antibody deficiency so it's like peeling an onion um i mean is there is there anything else in that realm that i guess this i'm sure there's a million things but that this helps with or that this detects or pushes
2: forward um yeah, I'm not sure where you you mean in terms of like specific areas or in, or types of diseases.
0: Yeah, uh, I guess
2: I, in I like the
0: areas.
2: Yeah, so in specific areas, I mean, I think we should be able to follow your your immune response <laughs> very mm-hmm. much, much better than we currently do. Your metabolic response, your, your all diseases have a metabolic moderation um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. associated with them. And you can actually follow this. And I think a lot of people like it Idea that some of these things associated with fatigue are affecting mitochondrial function. Mm-hmm. so uh, And there, there's often very specific signatures associated with that. So imagine you do a therapy and you could actually, quite frankly, pretty easily see if your mitochondrial functions are improving. That, that's not hard to do with the kinds of assays we're talking about. I, I think there'd be other sorts of things in the neurological space. I think there, there are neurological diseases, there's autoimmune, we actually mm-hmm. showed, we can measure that with some of the microsampling we're doing. We could actually see what your, do you have autoantibodies you don't know about in there mm-hmm. that are actually maybe they're associated with some of the symptoms that you have. And and I think that probably will be a big deal, I think in the case of chronic Lyme because people do have autoantibodies against certain things, uh, um, heart antigens, for example. And, and so we can actually be able to subtype these you know, chronic Lyme conditions. I hope into different categories. That's a data problem as well. If we mm-hmm. can subtype uh, people, and then that might also be very relevant to their treatments. If you have this type, you'll respond mm-hmm. to this treatment. If you have that type, you'll respond to a different treatment. So, so I think these deep data dives will be very, very powerful for that. And we're we're actually doing that. Um, you may not know I have type two diabetes, so we're very interested yeah. in subtyping type two diabetes. Some of the, uh I follow this chronic disease space pretty closely, and, and we can actually subtype it with different, some of the different measurement systems we're using. It's very, very relevant because it's a good good model, actually, because for diabetes, different drugs actually work for different subtypes. If you have, uh, it turns out I'm a metformin non-responder, that's the most common drug for type 2 diabetes. I don't respond to it, but I respond <laughs> to something else because my subtype, I actually don't release insulin from the pancreas, and there's a very specific drug for that. So, imagine we can get chronic lying to that kind of situation where we, hey, yeah. there's five subtypes. This type, this drug works for that subtype. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know a whole lot about your alley, but it sounds like there's something yeah. neurological flare or something that was part of this. But maybe we can figure out what the subtypes are and then treat that. Maybe some people will respond well to immunosuppressants and others not so well. Uh, mm-hmm. Because based on their subtype, so I think this could be very, very powerful, and that's a data problem. Once again, if we can mm-hmm. collect enough data from enough people, we can both subtype it and see how they respond to treatments. And sharing that data is huge. So I think whatever gets done has to wind up in a in a nice shareable database. Uh, that I, I I don't like it when people hoard data. That's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> yeah, um, ours too. You know, yeah, all my data is open. I have two petabytes of data. You can download it anytime
1: you want. Well, that's really cool. and, and we'll have to take you up on that. Generous. So, so I, there's another area that I, I wanted to discuss with the two of you, um, and that is uh, is the risk of Lyme disease. Right? We we know that the risk of Lyme disease is, is increasing substantially because we see the data. Right? Uh, we you know we went from you know we went from having as as few as thirty thousand, and I don't mean to say that that's not a small number of people. To now mm-hmm. we have over five hundred thousand. Uh, diagnosis of chronic Lyme disease in the U.S. per year, mm-hmm. and the numbers are going up. It's exploding, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things we talk about is not is what is risk, right? We have to define risk, and I define risk the way Stanley McChrystal did in his book, Risk, which is threat times vulnerability, right? We know the threat is increasing because of of, of climate change and the habit the habitability of of of, um, of, 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 of the world for um, for um, ticks is, is is increasing. We know that the breeding window is increasing. We know the number of ticks is increasing. We just know that's the case, right? So we're more likely to come in contact with a tick and therefore we're more likely to to get Lyme disease. Um, but let's talk about the vulnerability side, right? Because um, you know what we know from, you know almost all the experts in in Lyme disease is that you rarely go from a bite to a chronic illness, right? Uh, And and what I've been told by Dr. Rawls, for example, and, and, and Dr. Phillips, for example, is in their experience, the only time you go from bite to chronic illness is if you get bitten by multiple ticks at once, or if you're vulnerable because you're living, for example, in a high mold environment, right? And because you were immunosuppressed at the time you were bitten by the tick, the, the disease takes off, but in most cases, what happens is somebody has contact with the bacteria or this combination of germs that gets spit into them by a tick bite, and then many years goes by before they become chronically ill. There's a large gap in time, right? So let's let's talk about the wearable role in this this piece um, first with with watching the the you know the the disease develop and where we are from a vulnerability standpoint. And then I'd also like you to bleed into this, Dr. Snyder, the exposome work that you're doing and how that could aid us in understanding how we're be we're more vulnerable at a particular moment because you're now able to measure with some of the tools you've developed what we're absorbing from our environment.
2: All right. Um, So I guess, well, the first one is is what it's. um, Sorry, what did you want to know? Let's talk
1: about (laughs) about the 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 vulnerability at a particular. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's many
2: factors. My own guess is that there's probably a genetic component to this too. We know that. And so we have, believe it or not, new ways of analyzing genomes that I hope can get at that. We we're actually able to get some money to do this for chronic fatigue syndrome. So we're actually gonna try to get in there and see what, if we can figure out the genes and that, why is that powerful? That actually tells you a lot about the biochemical pathways that are underlying this, believe it or not. So for diabetes, you discover that both your immune cells and your pancreatic cells, I know this sounds obvious, but they both have an underlying role in in that disease. And, And that's how some of the first immune stuff was picked out. And so we, and we, we, I think we can do that for Lyme too. We may be able to see the biochemical pathways that are a little bit underlying this, and that may help subtype the disease then later too. And then, like you say, there's probably environment, there's almost certainly environmental factors, immune factors, you mentioned, mold. Um, And so I, I think it would be fantastic to measure that. I think we are lacking, and this is true of most chronic diseases, we, we, we don't know the early events, the things that are probably responsible for causing the disease. They may or may not be the same. Obviously, in this case, it's a tick. But what are those early events downstream of that tick that you're alluding to that then led this to a chronic condition? Why is it going one way versus another in different people, right? Why is it so heterogeneous? And we have a big gap there. So I actually think capturing that information. The wearables will capture that, at least for the physiology part of it, maybe not so much for the biochemical part. So I I think we can get that if we have people who are already wearing smartwatches and pull the data in, uh, pull the last several years of data from them and take a look at what's going on. I think on the exposure part, yeah, this is a brand new area. I think we don't, you know, think about it right now. You don't know what you're breathing. Uh, in terms of the biologicals, which is relevant for pollen, for mold, for all this sort of thing, as well as the chemicals, you know, what carcinogens, pesticides, things like that. So we have um, um, built, as part of this sort of extensive monitoring, uh, uh, an exposometer that measures airborne exposure. Some measures the usual thing, something called PM2.5. These are fine particulates that wind up in your in your lungs and measures temperature. Temperature, humidity—that's standard stuff. But it also measures uh, what, what we did was we under an air intake valve it has a pump and it sucks in air. It captures all the particles, so we can actually. Uh, and, and then under that, I'll just continue. So we we have a chemical absorbent, so we can measure both the biological things that are captured on on this filter, those particulates. We sequence them and we see exactly what you got. So we can see what molds are there, we can mm-hmm. see what bacteria there. So the ultimate goal is to try and make these associations between those biologicals and, and what's going on. And I think that could be very, very relevant for a chronic Lyme because again, those crash days may be very associated. Imagine that's associated with black mole exposure or something like mm-hmm. that. We could see that we can pick that up. And I, I think the same will be true for the chemical side of it. Imagine it's pesticides. So it turns out this is not a surprise there are pesticides everywhere. Actually the one that was surprised me. The DEET is everywhere, the stuff you use to keep insects off. Uh-huh. Even in our office town, <laughs> I was very surprised. It's every Now, the amounts vary a lot, as you might imagine. Some places, uh, pesticides were very prevalent when I was out in UC Davis uh, visiting. and There's um, very high levels there, and in and, and other areas, yeah, it's lower. So, and carcinogens, right? But for the first time, we can start making associations. We've actually done this on a personal level. That is to say, I can see what microbes like mold, fungi, all that stuff, as well as um, what chemicals are associated with my inflammatory response at a personal level. So I can make these because I have enough data around me to see which associations are present. So again, I think we should be able to do that on a Lyme case. We have a study rolling out for Crohn's disease, if you're familiar with that, that's an intestinal problem. It's, it's also likely an immune problem. And there are good days and bad days, and we're trying to make that kind of association. We have some exposure monitoring going on to see if we can see what's associated with those bad days. I'd love to do that for the Lyme situation as well. We we don't have a study like that rolling, but it'd be super cool to do that, right? To see what is triggering this. Um, yeah, so, so I think there's a lot that could be done here. This whole gene by environment interaction, totally unstudied in my mind. In fact, the environment in general is rather ignored. There's another area of the environment I think that's quite interesting. We always think about the environment as bad, right? You think about all the nasty chemicals and things like that and molds and stuff, but there's probably a lot of parts of the environment that are good for you, right? We were, humans grew up in an in a ecosystem uh, with and things like that probably a lot of positive stuff out there that nobody ever bothers to study so we're going to
1: launch a study in that area too that'll be a lot of fun that is really cool so uh you you did give us some time parameters and we always are respectful of our guest time parameters so I'm going to let my co-host Ali Moresco as we always do ask the final question of this uh, interview because by the way I keep you for 10 more hours if you if you had the time.
0: So if a loved one came to you with a tick biting them on their leg, what would you recommend that they would do so that they don't face the same suffering that most of the chronic Lyme community has?
2: Well, I would hope they would get measured right away. If hopefully they're wearing a smart watch <laughs> already. Uh, but if not, get a smart watch uh, and see what's going on physiologically. You know, obviously I, I would be following them pretty closely for the antibodies. I think with the this is still a research project. We haven't even launched this as a study, but to be able to do the microsampling and mm-hmm. see if they, I mean, we need to get those tests set up. So imagine you do get bit and you could just test it right away. Uh, I think they probably could get tested by a standard test, Lyme mm-hmm. test, I, I would hope. I hope they wouldn't be turned away. Uh, and, and I know there's often a lot of people who think, maybe there's a nice message to leave with, a lot of people don't want to get measured because they're afraid to hear the bad answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's worse to discover the bad answer down the road than it is to hear early. Imagine you mm-hmm. got bit by a tick and you're not sure if it's Lyme or not and it doesn't have a bullseye say, oh, it's probably not Lyme and therefore I'll ignore it. I don't think that's the right move. I think you want to mm-hmm. see if it was Lyme and, and it's better to know and then get you know, your treatment then. In my case, uh, you know I have a happy ending. I discovered mm-hmm. my Lyme with my smartwatch. I got the doxycycline and I have no complications. And I think that's true of the majority of people. Uh, it's people who actually ignored it or, or didn't, never, never you know, knew about it and mm-hmm. pop, pops up down the road. That's when it's a real problem.
1: Well, and of course, if you continue to monitor because you have the various monitoring devices, you can come to a you you can you can intervene in the event that while your body is harboring the bacteria as part of your microbiome, if it starts to change, you can then intervene later on. So you can have sort of this lifelong monitoring after a bite, and uh, and and you could and you could take some steps to prevent yourself from becoming chronically ill. And I think that's another part of the beauty of of what you're doing here. Uh, I mean, it is all really beautiful, but I think I, I think having this capacity to have long-term monitoring after coming in contact with, um, you know, these this polymicrobial infection, uh, puts you in a position where you can continue to take steps to protect your health if uh, you're vulnerable at some point and and these and, and these germs start to take off in your body. So, yeah, thank you. So, thank you so much for all the great and brilliant work that you're doing. And can can we just end this podcast by you sharing with our listeners? How they could participate in any of the studies that you're doing if they're interested in doing that.
2: Yeah, if you want, you can reach out to probably uh, me, M as a Michael, P as a Paul Snyder, S N Y D E R, at Stanford.edu. And maybe where you put this, I can put a link to the study up when you advertise this. uh, And that would be great. I mean, it really is a data problem. So the more data we get from folks, the better our, our. Studies will be, and and hopefully the more we'll learn, and and the ultimate goal, of course, is to uh, come up with solutions
1: that will be very, very beneficial for everyone. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Snyder, for being uh, for being the key to our optimism. In many cases, on this podcast, we find ourselves to be really saddened and depressed by the failures of the medical system. But I I, I do want to just share with you that you are. Quite frankly, one of the people that's giving me the greatest hope that we're going to be able yes. to get, you know, overcome that 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 treatment gap that has been created by our managed care system. So again, thank you so much for doing the great work you're doing. And God bless you and all the folks in your in your lab that are that are helping us with all the brilliant work that you're doing. Well, thanks for having me on the show.
0: Thank you for listening to our tick boot camp interview with our guest, Dr. Michael Snyder. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Michael Snyder, visit the website at med.stanford.edu and search Snyder Lab. We also want to encourage Lyme disease patients who would be interested in enrolling at Dr. Snyder's study to contact him at Snyder Lab. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a TickBite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 350 episodes, Subscribe to our email list or share feedback. Please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.